Now we have our Bibles open again at 1 Samuel chapter 4, 1 Samuel chapter 4, the capture of the Ark of the Covenant. Thinking this morning of how uh, our proper remembering of the past can actually be uh, warped uh, so that it becomes a snare rather than something good. Uh, There's a story told, and I I need to say this before telling the story, I'm pretty certain it's an apocryphal story, (laughs) uh, about a a holy man in China who uh, every day before his time of prayer would take some butter and lay it on the windowsill uh, as a kind of offering to God because food was very scarce. One day his cat came in and ate the butter. And so to prevent uh, the cat doing this, he tied the cat to the leg of his bed. Now, uh, this man was revered uh, for his piety and others joined him as disciples and they uh, worshipped as he did. So generations afterwards, long after the man had died, his followers continued to place an offering of butter on the windowsill and to have a, a cat tied to the leg of a bed in the room where they had their devotions. Now, of course, I'm almost certain the story is is apocryphal, but nevertheless, nevertheless, it makes a very valid point that what was good and useful in one context in the past can be venerated, can be elevated to uh, the the, the heights of being a tradition which is uh, unreproachable. And that, in many ways, is what's happening here with the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant uh, is brought into the thick of the battle without the Israelites really understanding what the Ark of the Covenant was really for, but thinking instead that because it was associated with blessing in the past, it would necessarily bring blessing in the present. Now, as I said, we are continuing uh, to think about the importance of remembering in the Christian life. Uh, We've seen already that when Jesus is speaking to a church which is in need of being revitalized, he calls on her to remember, to remember the height from which she has fallen. Uh, we, We said a week ago that remembering is very much what biblical religion is all about. We remember God's mighty acts in the past. We pass them on to the generation uh, rising behind us. But there's a distinction between (coughs) tradition, (coughs) which involves good, healthy, intelligent, reflecting on the past, and traditionalism, which is blindly doing things the way they've always been done. The Christian historian uh, Jaroslav Pelikan uh, put it in a very memorable way. Tradition, he says, is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. The past is important for the believer. We're told continually to remember the past. But there's an important pitfall to avoid. We must avoid an unthinking reliance on practices from the past. And it's not just Christians who are already in the, in the, the uh, number of the church. Uh, it's very possible for people to be attracted 
to the church for reasons which have really all to do with tradition and nothing to do with gospel. And we need to beware of that also. First then, the context of this account. First Samuel is a book uh, which speaks of the tradition from Israel being uh, a land which was basically a theocracy where God alone was the ruler to the kingdom. Uh, the book of Judges, uh, you have no king, uh, you have a cycle of things going uh, from bad to worse until God has to raise up a deliverer, a judge, delivers the people, things go alright for a short time and then a repeat cycle. And the verdict in Judges is that every man, there was no king, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The people ask for a king and uh, God provides a king. Samuel, the prophet, is a kind of transitional figure. He's a prophet and a priest and he also acts as a, as a ruler as well. At the, the time uh, we meet with uh, the, this Ark of the Covenant uh, situation, Samuel has been uh, given over to the priesthood by his mother Hannah. He's at Shiloh where Eli the priest and his sons Hophni and Phinehas uh, are resident. They are not good for Israel. Eli is a, a weak father. His sons exploit the people. We're told that uh, he extracts from them uh, more than they ought to. They are manipulative at the place of sacrifice. And Eli, because he is weak, doesn't confront them uh, for what they're doing. And so God sends a prophet to Eli telling him that he and his two sons are to be removed because they have not been faithful. And another leader will be raised up who will be a true shepherd. Now that, that man, of course, uh, is Samuel. He will replace them, and ultimately Samuel will appoint Israel's first king, Saul. Then that takes us to chapter 4, the war with the Philistines. Now we're kind of familiar uh, with the, the Philistines, the, the Rekar in the, the Old Testament. They were a sea people. They came from the Aegean Sea area. They settled on the coastal plain of Israel, and they were throughout Israel, as uh, early history, a thorn in the flesh. We're all familiar with the, the confrontation between Goliath, uh, the Philistine champion, and David. Well, there's a battle between the Israelites and the Philistines. The Israelites go out and confront the Philistines, and they are roundly defeated. 4,000 men are lost in the first battle. And so Israel goes back home, and they ask the right question. Why did this happen? Why is God displeased with us. Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? They see the sovereignty of God. They're asking the right questions. Why did God do this? The problem is they come up with the wrong answer. The answer they come up with is, oh, we went into battle without the Ark of the Covenant. They see that as the remedy for their defeat. We're speaking to the children about what the Ark of the Covenant was. Uh, basically, if you if you have in your home, we have in our home a, 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 what they call a blanket box, and it's a kind of old-fashioned thing to have now, but the Ark of the Covenant was about the size of a blanket box, covered with gold, carried with poles, containing the, uh, the tablets of the commandments. And it represented uh, three arms. It rep represented God's revelation. Here was his law to the people. 
It represented God's rule, goddess, and uh, envisaged as being enthroned between the cherubim. And it represented reconciliation because the cover, the lid of the, of the, the ark, was called the mercy seat. And on the Day of Atonement, the high priest, uh, who always required to sacrifice for himself before he could come in, also took blood uh, on behalf of the people and it was sprinkled over the mercy seat. So in a sense, the, the sin of the people was covered over. The mental picture is that you have the law in the box, the law has been broken by us, but with the, the blood that's been shed representing a forfeited life, the sin of the people is covered over, expiated. And God can be reconciled to sinful man. So it represented God's revelation, his rule, and his reconciliation. But in the mind of the, the popular mind of the people, the ark was associated with victory because it had been used when Israel won a, a great victory over Jericho, when it had been carried before the people, when uh, the priests circled the, the city seven times and the wall of Jericho came down. And it had also gone before the people when they crossed over the Jordan into the Promised Land. So in the popular mindset, the people are thinking, in the past, the ark brought us victory. We lost in battle today. Why? We didn't have the ark. You get the ark, God's bound to provide victory for us. And so, the Israelites decide that's what they'll do. And they are in, in ecstatic mood. There's this tremendous build-up of anticipation. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. You're old enough to remember the euphoria that preceded uh, Scotland's World Cup team leaving for Argentina in 1978. You've got a similar picture. We were going to win the World Cup. But just as Israel didn't win the next battle, neither did Scotland win the World Cup, despite the euphoria preceding it. 30,000 Israelite soldiers lost their lives in that second battle. They were utterly routed. But more than that, the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines. When the news came back to uh, Shiloh, it was too much for Eli. He fell over. He was killed. Uh, he had lost his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, in the battle. That news was too much for him. And when Phinehas' widow, who was expecting a child, heard, she went into premature labor and died, calling her newborn son Ichabod. For glory is gone. Glory is departed. It's a sad story. And what is to think about, first of all, the fact that when the glory goes, believers cling to religious externals and rituals. First point, when the glory goes, believers tend to cling to religious externals and rituals. Secondly, traditionalism, this clinging to what's external, can be a way of trying to manipulate God. Thirdly, God is quite prepared to allow us to be disappointed in these external things. 
in order to work out his purposes. When the glory departs, the church substitutes dead tradition. When the glory departs, the church clings to things that are external, formal, ritualistic. Phineas' widow said, The glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Well, Mrs. Phineas, you are almost right. But actually, the glory had departed before the ark of the covenant ever left. It was a consequence of the glory departing from Israel. You see, the Ark of the Covenant itself wasn't the glory of Israel. What was Israel's glory? Israel's glory was that she knew God. Of all the nations, she knew the living God. Israel's glory was that she walked humbly before her God in obedience to his commands. Israel's glory was that she was a light to the nations. But Israel had lost that glory. She was ruled by false shepherds. And it was some time since the glory had been seen in Israel. The glory had gone. And and Israel was simply uh, clinging to outward remnants, memorabilia of a glorious past. The Ark of the Covenant that had been associated with days of glory. And the tragedy is, as usually happens, she didn't even know. She didn't even know. It was a little bit like what happened to Samson when Delilah eventually wheedled out of him the secret of his strength that it lay in his long hair. And remember that uh, Samson had his hair shaved. And then we have these very poignant words when uh, the Philistines come and Delilah goes again, Samson, Samson, the Philistines are coming. And we're told that Samson uh, got up as before because he did not know that his strength had gone. He did not know that his strength had gone. His glory had left him, but he did not know. And friends, that's so often what happens with us in a situation of decline We lose our strength spiritually and we are not aware of it. We don't know that our strength has gone, that the glory has left us. And it it works out in in a very kind of uh, ordinary way. You know, we're saying our prayers, we're maybe still reading our Bible, we're showing up in church, but the life has gone out of it. Our walk with God has become formalized. There is no life, no wing, no fire, no passion. We have lost our first love. And when that happens, when the glory of God has departed from a Christian, what we'll tend to do is to cling to things that are external and are associated with better times in the past. We look to ritual, we look to a style, we look to a tradition that we connect with better times and we think that things will be better if we get back to that. The Israelites were defeated in battle, so they thought back to Jericho when the ark 
have been used, have been in the, in the fore, in the, the marching around the city, and they thought things will be better if we go back to the old way of doing things. We ought really to have had the ark as we had before. And we do that in all kinds of ways in the church. It might be clinging to a certain kind of service. Uh, certain branches of the church uh, have a fairly formalised pattern of having uh, a breaking of bread in the morning, a gospel service at night. And that can be pretty sacrosanct in some circles. And a gospel service and, and some of the traditional aspects that go with it carried on, although maybe it was decades before since a, a, an unbeliever was actually in that gospel service. Every culture has its own traditions. And we have, we have our own traditions in the free church, undeniably. Uh, we can be very blind to what's close to us. I remember a, a Korean student coming uh, once uh, saying he was interested in, in working with me when I was in Sky. And we had a, a chat together. And it became very clear very quickly that he would have been very keen to have introduced various Korean practices because back in Korea they were associated with blessing. And so in Korea when they have a prayer time everybody prays uh, verbally together. It must be very difficult to, to uh, understand uh, what's going on. Everybody prays uh, vocally together. Now he didn't get as far as suggesting that we would have a prayer mountain and we would go up uh, you know, at 4am to pray which is a sacrosanct tradition in many Korean churches. But that may have been down the road. I read on Facebook uh, last week of uh, somebody who was decrying the, the, uh, what he called, he, how did he put it, the flat, atomistic, modernist kind of church. And uh, he was associating this, this with preachers in suits were associated with this uh, carelessness about confessionalism and so on. And what was his answer to this? The answer was to get the preacher to buy a robe. It was robes that would set the, the, the standard and give a clear idea that we were serious about uh, confessionalism. Some kinds of evangelism are like the practice of getting the Ark of the Covenant into the army again. You know, people uh, ask the question, why are we not seeing converts? Why are people not coming to Christ? Answer, because we're not doing street preaching. And what's the logic? Well, street preaching is associated with the, the greats of the past. Wesley, Whitfield, they all preached in the open air. People get put in jail because of street preaching. They're suffering for the cause. Street preaching must be the way that God approves. And yet, when you think about it, street preaching connected very strongly at a certain time when people did get information from what was said at street corners and people gathered uh, in large numbers to hear politicians uh, share uh, in the open air from soapboxes what their view were but today it's quite different the the mainstream way of of communicating what people think is social media it's actually facebook it's twitter and things like that these are places where people are listening to ideas and discussing things. And so getting into the street is clearly it's a good thing from time to time when it's done uh, properly because it raises the profile of the church. 
But if it's seen as a slavishly, as the only divinely appointed way of evangelizing, then we lapse into that Ark of the Covenant way of thinking. Now, it might seem that honoring those ways from the past is quite innocent. Okay, there's nothing wrong, is there, with, with uh, sticking to uh, traditional ways of doing things. I had once an ingenious uh, use of a verse from Proverbs in defense of this. Uh, it was the, the verse that says, do not move an ancient boundary stone, right? <laughs> and the argument was that, you know, our forefathers did things in a certain way. They've set up these markers and we shouldn't move them. Now, of course, that's not what it's saying in Proverbs at all. It's talking about uh, the rich extending their fields by moving field boundary stones. But it was applied in in that way. Uh, but traditional traditionalism, as opposed to tradition, tradition being a good thing, traditionalism being a dangerous thing, traditionalism is not innocent because it may actually be a way of seeking to manipulate God. The Israelites are saying in effect, Lord, we have the Ark of the Covenant going out in battle. Now, it's up to you to come good on a victory. Because if you don't, imagine, imagine the consequences. Everybody is going to, to see in a very visible way God has been defeated. And that's unthinkable. So therefore, God, you have to come up with the goods. That's manipulation. It's like uh, a son in a family who gives out hundred invites uh, to all his friends for a, a party in the house. Right? All these invites go out and then uh, he goes to check to see if it's okay uh, with his parents. Is it okay if, if I have this party? Actually, the, the invites have all gone out. <laughs> well, the parent knows exactly what's going on here. Uh, say no and everyone is going to hear that uh, my dad is the world's worst killjoy. Yeah? It's all been fixed up. It's manipulation. And that is what's going on here with the use of the Ark of the Covenant. Traditionalism can be a manipulative way to force, or to think we can force, the hand of God. So it's easy to think that because the week of special evangelistic services was blessed back in the 1970s, it will work today. And without giving it, bringing it to God in prayer, the practice is restored because we think the practice itself has something divinely appointed about it. So it can be manipulating God and it can also, secondly, uh, amount to superstition. It can be a kind of lucky charm type of theology. The sailors, uh, seafaring people, are notoriously superstitious. Ministers and redheads, uh, unfortunately, we are bad luck on boats. On the other hand, place a piece of silver under the masthead of a fishing boat, and that's supposed to guarantee good luck. According to Parahandi, the, the, uh, the boats in Loch Fine were loading with herring because they had a luck bird on board. Now, there's not a huge distance to travel between that kind of thinking and 
thinking that a wooden box is going to bring military success, or robes, or a communion season, or door-to-door -door visitation. So by placing our confidence in ways of doing something rather than in the Lord, we're actually lapsing into superstition. And thirdly, and, and this is most important, I think, in, in relation to what we're, we're trying to, to do in seeking the Lord to, to build up and to restore spiritual health in us individually and as a church. Traditionalism can be a substitute for the real spiritual work that needs to be done. In the end of the day, it doesn't really matter if our methods are out of date. Now, there's no virtue in our methods being out of date. But God can bless any way of doing things, really, so, so long as it's not contrary to his law. There's a fad, of course, that we have to be up, bang up to the minute in our ways of doing things, and that is simply a fad. What matters is that we're right with God. And the danger of, of placing our trust in, in ways of doing things is that we lose sight of that need to ensure that our hearts are right with God. Uh, Barvis, which was my first charge, was uh, experienced uh, revival in 1949-1950 under the ministry of Duncan Campbell. And when Duncan Campbell was invited to come and preach uh, on Lewis, he was met by some of the elders from the church uh, at, the, at the pier in Stornoway. And one of the elders, uh, his, his first, I don't know if it came after some small talk, but uh, his first question to Duncan Campbell was, Mr. Campbell, are you walking with God? That got right to the heart of the matter. It really didn't matter you know, what his, his proposals for how many meetings or where the meetings would be or whether he would wear a dog collar or robes. These things were insignificant in comparison to the question as to whether he was walking with the living God. Matthew Henry, when he's commenting on this text, says, they would have succeeded better, the Israelites would have succeeded better if they had first repented and reformed and so begun their work at the right end. What was necessary, they omitted because of their reverence for the past. Our third point is, God will allow himself, will allow us to be disappointed. Will allow it to seem even that he has been defeated in order to bring about his desired ends in our lives. The Israelites thought it was inconceivable that God would allow defeat when the Ark of the Covenant was at stake. They're, they're thinking basically, contemplate the horrendous publicity if it gets about that the Ark has been captured. It would 
signal the defeat of God. God is not going to allow that. He's not going to allow it. But God clearly is willing to allow himself to seem defeated in order to work out his purposes. Friends, that is what Calvary is all about, isn't it? What did people see when they looked at a man gasping for breath on a Roman cross? They saw defeat. They saw weakness. They saw helplessness. But God was working out his strength and his deliverance and was displaying his wisdom. And similarly, God is willing that we should be disappointed if that's the way for us to be brought to trust him rather than dead traditions. It was a terrible day for Israel. It was one wave of bad news after the other. Your sons have died in battle. Israel has lost 30,000 of her finest. Oh, and the Ark of the Covenant has been captured as well. Terrible disappointment. But God was cleansing the temple. We have to remember that behind that, behind this story, is that the, the fulfillment of the, the prophecy that Eli and his sons would be replaced by a shepherd who would be faithful. Shiloh would be cleared of these false shepherds. And later on, uh, when uh, Jeremiah is addressing some of the, the, the false attitudes towards the temple, he reflects back on Shiloh. Has this house, he says, in Jeremiah 7, has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. Go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And then Jesus comes to his temple and he echoes these words which in turn are echoing Shiloh. And he says, My house will be called a place of prayer but you have turned it into a den of robbers. And he takes the scourge and he drives out the money chamber, changers and he overturns their tables. And Jesus is still overturning tables in the church. And he will allow whatever it takes for his people to come back to a living faith rather than depending on ritual and tradition and formal things. Now, this applies to people who are, are, are being drawn to the church as well as people who are in the church. I want to say it's very possible to not to be a Christian and to be attracted to, uh, to the church and her traditions rather than to Jesus. It can happen with the free church. It can happen maybe uh, this morning. If, if someone is in church this morning and not a Christian, and maybe the image of the free church, although many think of it as a negative thing, is something which appeals to you, that stern uh, resolute uh, opposition to error, commitment to the truth. And it's an image to which you're drawn rather than a saviour. And that is a great snare. And then for those of us who are uh, Christians, who are in the church, then the temptation is 
that we are blind uh, to, to things which can become, in our own situation, a tradition. And we do things because we've always done them, and we expect that God is duty-bound to honour. Now, we just look straight in front of our noses. What is lying ahead of us in the coming week? We're doing a holiday club again, right? And anything becomes a tradition after you've done it twice. So it's a tradition, isn't it? How can we be delivered from traditionalism? By dependence upon the living God. Well, we go into the week thinking, well, God blessed us in the past, which he clearly did. And he is duty-bound to bless it again. Or will we cry it to the Lord and say, Lord, we who are doing this, we are sinners. And really, without you, we are absolutely helpless. We wouldn't know where to start. And we need you, Lord. We need you to come in power. And only in your mercy. There's nothing that we can, that we can do to coerce you into coming to our aid. But Lord, we're looking to you. Will that be the spirit with which we're going to our outreach this week. May God deliver us from traditionalism. May he give us an appreciation of the tradition that has been passed down to us. But deliver us from a false reliance on that which doesn't save, but diverts us from being absolutely dependent on the living God. Let's pray to you. Father, we do pray that you might hear our prayer and make us feel our weakness, we ask. Lord, keep us from being blind to the ways in which we can depend upon things which are really external. Lord, may we be walking with you today and in the coming days. And may we feel our weakness and our dependence, Lord, at this time of mission. And Lord, we pray that in your sovereign mercy, you might be pleased to bless and to save. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.